one in two people in our country believe that they have taken an action to support their local food bank. And that's huge. So half the population have done something. And often that will be putting a tin in a collection point in a supermarket. But I always think of that tin, not just as a tin of food, but uh, an act of solidarity from a neighbor to their neighbor. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and much more. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Emma Reevey, CEO of Trussell Trust, the UK's largest network of food banks. We'll be talking about what makes her so passionate about social action, the current cost of living crisis, and how her faith helps her to keep going, even in the face of unprecedented need. So Emma, would you just start off by telling us a little bit about your own history did you grow up in a christian home so a little portable gospel hall came to our village in the north of scotland and my mum went along to the meetings as we call them and became a christian and thus began a sunday ritual of a 24 mile journey to our church which was a little brethren church in perth the nearest city to where i grew up um, where we would go basically for the whole day, we take our packed lunch and a packed tea, because by the time you've driven that far, you're staying for the full day. And we we started going along. And so there, then my aunties became Christians and my uncles and my cousins, and it became almost a Sunday pilgrimage through to the gospel hall on, on a Sunday and then on a Wednesday evening. And then on Friday night, we had a ministry meeting in our village um, because quite a few people have become Christians through the little portable hall. So I became a Christian, I was about nine or 10, I think. But actually it was more when I went to university, it became more about my personal relationship with God and less about this is just what our family does. And so I suppose God, God was always in my life for as long as I could remember in terms of being really important. But I think the significance of that relationship really kicked in for me when I was about 17, 18 and, and went off to university. And that's really interesting because for a lot of kids that grow up in Christian homes, it's when they first leave and go to university that they actually run into trouble and they find it quite hard to sustain their faith and they haven't got their mum or dad perhaps sort of nudging them on a Sunday morning to go to church. But you actually found that it was when you left the family home that you had to decide to take it seriously for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think I was really blessed. So I had made some good friends through kind of going to brethren conferences uh, in, in the city in Glasgow. And when I moved to Glasgow for university, my friends were near at hand and there yeah, I got really involved in the Christian Union at my university, which was amazing, met some lovely Christians. But for a wee brethren girl, um, the change was like meeting Christians from lots of different traditions who had like vastly different views on different things for me, which I was like, oh my goodness, this is extraordinary. I remember the first time we had, like, we broke into small groups to pray 
at the Christian Union and I had to grab two women next to me so they could pray with me because <laughs> I had never prayed out loud <laughs> with with men in a, in a small group context. So it was a really big culture shock for this 17 year old girl from the village going off to the city. But it was just wonderful hearing everyone's different stories about their relationship with God and encountering them and seeing that it's a real commonality when you see when you see Christ and other people, <laughs> even though they're doing different things and talking about things in a different way, but you see something of 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 God in in one another. And I just I just find it incredible to experience the richness and the diversity of Christian experience. Um and I just thought this is amazing. And and God kind of bore with me <laughs> through, through that journey. But I it was a really, yeah, a really formative point in my life really where I thought actually this is who I am and what's important to me. And so as and it continued from from then on really. And you've worked in the charity sector for pretty much all of your professional life, haven't you, by the early years? Was that for you very much a part of your faith? Was it always an, an intention that, you know, I am a Christian, these are my beliefs, therefore I, I wish to work them out in this way? I think definitely. So the, when I talk about those friends I had made when I was quite young, even before I went to university, the things we would talk about were around poverty. And I remember going to Glasgow and, and really being confronted with poverty for the first time because it wasn't as obvious in the village where, where I grew up. But seeing people having sleep rough and kind of homelessness, etc. And therefore it was part of our conversation. And then through Christian Union, I also got involved with an organisation called Tear Fund, so an international development agency. I became a volunteer for them in my church in Glasgow and learning about like poverty across the world. And particularly the thing like it was around Jubilee 2000, dropping the debt, un unpayable debt held by the developing South that was preventing people, countries being able to look after their own citizens because they were repaying unpayable debts and it really sparked in me uh, a sense of injustice that this is not right this is not the way the world should be and it's not what god would want for for how we engage with one another and i got really involved in jubilee 2000 and after that kind of make poverty history and things like that. so it was there was a christian lens even to those early engagements around poverty largely because of a tier fund actually it was a really formative relationship and i when i was leaving university i was like i I definitely want to go work for Tier Fund. And I remember being at a volunteer conference with the chief executive and international director for the conference. And I arrived late and they were sitting outside the main conference hall and I didn't want to go in and interrupt anyone. So I just sat down with them and I said, oh, I'm like about to leave uni. I'm really keen to come and work for Tier Fund. And they asked me about my experience. And I said, well, I'm doing German and European studies. <laughs> They said, well, I'm not sure you'd have any relevant skills to come and work with us. Um, go get some skills and uh, then come again. So I was very much thinking about what skills I could get. And I started temping at IBM and got skills in customer service. But the minute I felt I got enough skills, I went back to Tier Fund and said, are these any good? And I got a job there as head of support services. I, I was, it was definitely tied to faith, poverty and wanting to work in the third sector. And so that's that's how it started, really. Yeah, and you continued that through various other organisations before you got to Trussell Trust. How long have you been at Trussell Trust now? Is it around five years? Just under, so about four and a half. It'd be five years in February, so yeah. 
So, you know, on one hand, that feels like a, a substantial amount of time. And then on the other hand, when I think back, actually, over the last five years of, of what has actually happened in our country, you've seen some incredible change and some incredible challenges being CEO in particular through the COVID-19 pandemic must have been incredibly challenging. Yeah. Um, as you know, my mum runs a food bank down here in Cornwall. So I worked firsthand with her during the pandemic to help her. She shut for one day. That was all. Yeah. That was all they shut for in the end and, yeah. um, and moved everything online. And, and just watching her in, in our local area, just try to find an entirely new way of working because obviously a lot of the food bank systems relied on mm. paper and you know vouchers that were given to people by a social worker and suddenly overnight no one was seeing each other let alone swapping bits of paper and I saw the amount of effort and work that went into taking one food bank online and then you know nationally you've got 13 1400 what was that like can you even put it into words so it's it it was extraordinary and like your mum is like the kind of person that made it more extraordinary so I remember sitting in my bedroom about a week after lockdown and I was sitting in my bedroom because I had a persistent cough and a temperature uh so working away and uh I did an interview and I said I'm just really not sure our food banks are going to be able to keep going because the scale of like all the things you would put in a risk assessment as catastrophes that might happen all of them happened at the same time <laughs> like catastrophic failure you would think of of a system so food disappearing off of the shelves in supermarkets that are the kind of food items that you put in a food parcel volunteers over a certain age having to shield and that was being the same kind of age as often our average volunteers age and um, people not being able to leave their homes and to come in person referral agencies not being open to refer people to us everything uh, small community spaces like little churches or community centers being too cramped to socially distance in and, and everything all happened at once so i remember thinking this is it wasn't gonna be possible couldn't be possible for our banks to keep going and they absolutely did every single one of them like unbelievable just like maybe closed for half a day or a day or a couple of days whilst they reoriented everything and kept going because there was no way and that's what i i will never again think our food banks can't keep going they'll keep going until they keel over because that's what they do they're not gonna they're not gonna leave somebody unable to access support and so when I think back to the pandemic my overwhelming sense is of what a, a tremendous privilege it was to get to work with our food banks the privilege of being able to do something which I know like for a lot of us we could see that lots of things were going on and you wanted to help but you couldn't really because you were at home and you, you were locked down whereas actually being part of the Trussell Trust and being a key worker is always allowed there was a privilege of being able to do something and to take action and they're just the privilege of seeing firsthand human capacity to keep going and to protect one another and to take action I'll never forget it it was it was very difficult a lot of hard work but overwhelmingly my sense is that it was a real privilege and was it a time that where you felt you had to particularly press into God personally or as an organization I know Trussell Trust runs this this very delicate balance of being a a charity that is rooted in a in a Christian past and and, yeah. and runs on Christian principles and Christian 
um, values, but that also, you know, is very accessible and there for everybody. So how do you balance those challenges, at, particularly at times like that? Yeah, so I think it's about being inclusive. So being able to be authentically yourself uh, and allow others to be authentically themselves. And so I think as an organization, as a network, we need to create space for people to, to have a difficult day, to be struggling with having to look after their kids at home whilst trying to sort out sourcing food for things on the, and so it, it was about creating that space, saying it's all right to not be all right. It's all right to share what's going on. It's all right for to create to create space for people to pray if they want to pray, to create space for people to have a weep. We weep alongside those who are weeping and we we laugh and have joy alongside those people who are experiencing joy. And I think that's that's so important. It's like the, for me, that's deeply rooted in my faith. That that is a really important thing that we extend to one another and our values around um, community, around justice, around dignity and around compassion really held us during the pandemic. We were always thinking, well, how do we respond to this in a way that is consistent with our values? And for me, those values are very much rooted in, in my Christian faith. We had some really difficult decisions to make during the pandemic, like how do you respond? How do you engage? How, when do you call for justice and when do you focus on compassion and what, what's the right thing to do? in the midst of something that is so difficult. And I, I know there were a couple of times when I had really difficult conversations with government who we were working with, and I was definitively on my knees during those conversations thinking, I don't actually know what the right thing to do in this situation is, but I'm going to try and do the right thing with, with what I understand, something that, the right thing in line with our values, the right thing in line with what I, what I believe, and just pray that I'm acting in the right way, but definitely my faith was really important to me <laughs> during that time because the scale of the issues that people were facing in communities, the scale of the issues our food banks were, were dealing with was far too much for us on our own. Uh, being able to, at the end of the day, hand that up to God and say, I, I'll be up for it again tomorrow, <laughs> but for today, <laughs> I don't know if this is enough, continues to be a really important part of how I and I imagine many of our food bank staff get through any given day. And what was incredible during the pandemic was, I mean, on, on one hand, there were criticisms of the church. There were, there were the people that were saying the churches have shut their doors. They shouldn't have. They're not doing enough. You know, what, where, where's everybody gone? And then on, on the other hand, you had so many churches actually saying, hang on a minute, we, we are, we're working harder than ever. So I, yeah. I think quite rightly, people were able to quite easily rebut those that said the church has just shut its doors because the vast majority, I, I know my church pastor was working harder than he's probably ever worked in his life. So on the one hand, it was this amazing opportunity. And then you started to see these reports coming out of government saying, hey, the church has actually been really active and this is really great. And isn't the church doing an amazing work? Do, have you seen fruit from, from that? Have you seen attitudes towards Christian organisations change? It's not empirical, but yes, I think I have. I think everyone recognises that churches and, and actually all faith traditions really step forward into their communities um, during the pandemic. They're located in the middle of their communities. Like one of the things that filled me with joy during the pandemic was photographs food banks we were sending around of like their entire church buildings taken over by their food banks. 
like they just moved in so we had we had to keep social distancing away so you've got like the sanctuary of amazing buildings just filled with shelves of food whilst people were working in a social distance way and i thought like for me it was just incredible like it's what i think we are called to do like if people were in crisis people needed our help and i think churches and other faith communities oh they stepped forward in an absolutely extraordinary way mission before ego like it was what we were called to do what our values require us to do and and people just rolled their sleeves up and and got on and did it and considering it's hard to remember back but the level of fear there was. It's a very courageous thing that people did in our communities, getting up every day when the streets were silent and people weren't out and about and driving or walking to get to a place where they were providing emergency food to make up parcels. It took a lot of a lot of courage and a lot of bravery. And those churches churches were open and they were working and they were enabling. We last year we provided 2.1 million emergency food parcels. It's just extraordinary. And during the pandemic, at, at some point, that we had double the number of people coming through our doors than we'd had pre-pandemic. Wouldn't it be possible? So 800 of our food bank centres are located in church buildings. So if churches hadn't stayed open, there would have been no Trussell Trust Food Bank Network. And that is a that is a huge number, isn't it? That are that are part of church projects, and and even those you know like our local food bank, which is not located in our church building because there isn't yeah. room, is very much part of the church. So you know th- there are so many churches that have found a a way to serve their local communities through the, through food banks and particularly through the Trust of Trust network, which is an incredible thing, really, isn't it? But it is also a, quite a sad thing. I know you guys say this a lot, that yeah. it, it's a strange thing perhaps to head up an organisation and to year on year say, we're doing more, we're doing more, we're doing more, when actually your aim is not to do more. Your your aim is that, that it doesn't need to exist at all. How do you hold that tension? It's really hard, if I'm honest. Like just today, we've been talking about that very thing as a, a senior team here at Trussell. It weighs very heavily because it's like everything is going in the wrong direction. And how how many more times can I say how much worse it is? And it is worse again. Like we've seen over August and September, so summer months when normally it's a bit quieter and we get quite a lot of food in and preparation for the winter. This August and September, we were um, 46% up on the same period last year. We were seeing winter levels of need in the summer and it's continuing to go up. And so as we look to the winter, it's just horrendous. And people were struggling last year and it's just got worse. And so you think it's not just about the numbers of people coming, but the experience of those people and the stress and the worry of just not being able to see an end to their struggles, this increase in their costs, this cut in their income that has it just kind of been compounded year on year over the last few years. It's it's really hard because you know the compassion, like, and this is where I come back to our values again. So our values of compassion and justice. So compassion, you respond. So you see somebody who's gone multiple days without food or is saying, I don't have food for my family and you respond in compassion. But you know it's not just. You know an emergency food parcel is not paying the gas bill. 
is not paying for uh, kids' new school shoes, is not covering the trips that you've just had a letter through from the school to tell you you have to, to pay for. It's not covering all of those other things. And the reason somebody's coming to a food bank is not just because they don't have access to food, because they don't have enough money for all of those essential items. So we do the most we can do in compassion, but knowing every time that it's just not just and it's not right and it's not enough. And that, I think, for our volunteers and for staff, I think that's really hard for them, having through the pandemic and then into the cost of living crisis. You're thinking, this is not just. We know that two thirds almost of people who come to food banks uh, are disabled, have long-term ill health issues that are affecting their daily lives. We know that single parents are twice as likely to be in a food bank than in the working age population. It's not right that because you're caring for your children or because you are disabled and maybe can't work more hours or work at all, that you're having to rely on emergency food aid to try and make ends meet. That feels wrong and that's hard to bear, I think. Yeah, it is. And I think at the start of the pandemic, lots of the newspapers were talking about this blitz spirit, weren't they? And like, oh, we're all pulling together and we're going to get through this. And and lots of food banks did report an increase in donations. And it, it really felt like everybody was working together. But I think you're right. People thought it was going to be a short term thing. And then hopefully we would all get back to the way it was before and in, in inverted commas. And that never quite happened, did it? Because then suddenly we we pivoted out of the end of a, a global pandemic into, oh, there's a cost of living crisis and electricity bills are going through the roof. And, oh, there's a war in Ukraine and our gas prices have gone up again. And and you know, Jack Monroe writing that tweet that went a bit viral where she yeah. talked about how the, the cost of basics have gone up in shops. And, and that's just not stock. It kind of feels like at some point it should have plateaued or something, but, it, but it's yeah. just not. Like it, you look around and I just think it's getting worse. Like how, how are people going to cope? So what's on your, your guys' hearts? Like wh- where are you looking for the church or for government to step in? Like what can we do? It, it does feel a bit hopeless sometimes, doesn't it? I think it's really important that we hold on to the fact that this can change, actually. That we saw a dip in July in the number of people coming to food banks when the government's cost of living payment came to people on universal credit. Um, But they were back in August. We did some research in August with YouGov. And our research said, first of all, that 40% of people on universal credit had had to skip meals or go whole days without food in the previous three months. 21% of people hadn't been able to heat food over the summer months. But what was really concerning is that 70% of people said that the payment they'd received in July, the cost of living payment they'd received from the government in July, had been used entirely. And when asked what it had been used on, it had been used on food and personal hygiene items. So the money went to the right people, but it was gone. It was just not enough. And that allows us to know that if we can get the right amount of money, to people, there is a possibility they won't have to come to food banks. Our research, we did a three-year study into the state of hunger in the UK, and we know that the average household income for somebody coming to the food bank, household income, is just £57 a week after housing costs. It's a very, very low level of income. And we know, as I've said already, that people who are disabled, people who have caring responsibilities are far more like hugely overrepresented in the food bank populations. And that's because some people can't work or can't work more hours 
And so they're reliant on social security, which is what our social security system is there to provide, to support people who are unable to work or unable to work anymore. And what's really clear is it's not providing enough money to hold people out of destitution. So 95% of people coming to food banks meet the, the criteria of being destitute at that point. They just don't have enough money. But so that's for, £57 a week, out of which you're expected to pay everything, everything other than your housing costs. So bills, Correct. food, yep. everything else. Absolutely. Um, but travel for important appointments like hospital appointments, doctor appointments, everything out of that. And so if you potentially have long-term ill health or disability, there are extra costs that come. We know that there are extra costs. If, if you're disabled potentially or have a, a, a ill health, there are extra costs that come with caring responsibilities. Social security is just not stretching far enough. And so people are coming to us after they've cut back everything, after they've gone multiple days without eating food. And often families come to us at the point where the parents have gone for quite some time without food, but where they are unable to feed their children. And so we've seen a huge increase over the last um, couple of years in the number of children that are having to come and receive emergency food from our banks. And that's just not right. So therefore, I think the most important thing we have to hold on to is this can change. It's not very complex. It's that people don't have enough money. So do we as a society, and I believe we do, because we saw it during the pandemic, we believe everyone should be able to afford to eat. <laughs> uh, so we need to look at what policy shifts, what structural injustices need to be tackled to ensure that people have enough money for the essentials. So the conversations we're having with government at the moment are certainly around, at the very least, benefits need to rise in line with inflation. Otherwise, what we're going to see in April is a real-time cut to working age benefits that already have led to so many people not being able to afford essential life. But on top of that, we need a longer term review to ensure that working age benefits allow people to afford the essentials we all need to live. What we need to stay warm, to stay fed, to stay housed. That's a, that's a baseline. It's an essentials guarantee. We need a guarantee. But the other conversation we're having with government is we know there's a five week wait before you get your first payment on benefits. So if you've lost your job or you've become unwell and have had to look to social security to hold you for a period of time, you'll have to wait weeks minimum for your first payment. And during that time, the government will offer a loan to you to cover that five weeks. But thereafter, that loan will be deducted from your ongoing payments. And we know that over half of the people coming to Food Bank are there and are in debt to the government for repaying that advance. So it's an unaffordable debt that is leaving people unable to afford food. So we can do something about that. We don't need to deduct quite so much from people's benefits to repay that. There are better ways for ensuring that that five weeks is bridged and that people get enough money month to month to be able to cover their costs. So these are the kind of conversations we're, we're having with government, whilst recognising that the government have stepped in in unprecedented ways. They have increased funding through one-off payments to people, like the cost of living payment, but it's just not enough yet. Not enough protection to hold people out of destitution. And so that's where our focus has to be. And do you feel like the general public are on your side in this debate? Because it's kind of, it's difficult, isn't it? Like you say, we, we are living in unprecedented times. 
we know from the noise that comes out of Westminster sometimes that the government is saying we we have already spent an unprecedented amount of money in the last few years with furlough payments and all this thing. There is no magic money tree, as everyone keeps telling us. We have to make cutbacks. Our borrowing is at record levels. Our spending is at record levels. How do you balance that? Is there still a, an assumption out there from certain parts of our society that everyone that uses a food bank is just lazy and has their Sky TV and their mobile and maybe they should all just budget like the rest of us? Or do you feel like, on the whole, the public is on your side on this? So I think there's been a shift. And so we know from recent research that 85% of people think that uh, benefits should be increased to support people to be able to afford the essentials. That's a huge shift. But I also think, like, we know that one in two people in our country believe that they have taken an action to support their local food bank. And that's huge. So half the population have done something. And often that will be putting a tin in a collection point in a supermarket. But I always think of that tin, not just as a tin of food, but uh, an act of solidarity from a neighbor to their neighbor. Like, I don't think it's right that somebody in my in my neighborhood, in my street, is not gonna be able to afford food. And I'm putting this tin in as an act of solidarity. And I think that bore out again during the pandemic, people wanting to protect their neighbors. So I think there is a, a general sense that it's not right. And yes, I don't envy the government at all, the challenges, the unprecedented challenges that they are facing. But there are certain things we can't afford not to do. When we're talking about people going without food, people's children going without food, when we're talking about people facing impossible decisions this winter, so whether to heat their homes, cook their food or feed their children, we can't afford not to take action on that. And I think there's something around a conversation we need to be having with one another and with our elected officials about our expectations of one another. And I think a core expectation we have is that if someone is unable to work or unable to work more, that they should have enough money to be able to afford the essentials. And that, I think, is becoming more and more apparent to people. And that, that is certainly our, what our research shows, is that people are, are coming to food banks really as a, a last resort after having tried everything else to make ends meet. And I think people are, the general public are becoming more and more aware of that. So hopefully, again, we come back to hope. I have a, a deep hope. First of all, I know change is possible, but I have a deep hope that, that change will come. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Is it in part your Christian faith that gives you that hope? Is, is that what enables the food bank's to work as hard as they do is it that underpinning i i think it's definitely plays a role for me but I, actually i just i see it time and time again in conversations i like i get such hope from seeing our food banks in action like our volunteers and staff's capacity for compassion which you think should have a limit there must come a point where you just haven't got anything else to give and yet I have never seen that point in action. I've just only ever seen unlimited capacity for compassion to, to give more of, of themselves for their neighbours and, and their communities. 
And therefore, I think that my hope is rooted in that, like we can and, and do day in, day out, act in a way that if we can spark that sense of justice in more of us, spark that compassion, then, then change is, is possible. We can do better than just having to provide emergency food aid to people who are struggling to make ends meet. We, we have done better in the past and I'm, I, I know we will do better in the future. Is it difficult to walk that balance between the practical and the political? Sometimes charities do get criticised, don't they? You start out, you know, the Trust or Trust started out as a person in a garage doing something deeply practical, feeding their neighbours. It grows into this massive national organisation with, a, you know, 1,500 food banks or whatever the number is of centres across the UK. Now you're moving into other areas and politically campaigning to try to to end food poverty at a structural level. And, and, and you very eloquently explained to me why you think that's important. But do you still get the criticisms of why don't you just stick to what you were doing in the beginning and not bother getting caught up in all of that stuff? So definitely the question the question is asked and so and it's a reasonable question you have to have an answer I think for that question and then and it's one's experience. Our ops director Linda was saying that she'd been speaking to one of our food banks just a week before 14 years ago had been had set up their food bank and the somebody was coming in to fit broadband and said um, look you're going to get a better deal if you take out a five-year contract and she went no 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 I just want a two-year contract. I'm not going to be here in two years. This is a short-term intervention. And now, 14 years later, she's still running that food bank and seeing need like she would never have anticipated. And so that 14 years of seeing people struggle in that community, 14 years of hearing people's stories of the systemic failures and struggles with support and the human capacity for a relationship breakdown or to become unwell or like all of the things that work together to cause somebody to have to come through the door of a food bank. And, and what I've seen in our network, even over the last five years, is that they can identify so clearly <laughs> the structural things that need to change that would stop them having to distribute emergency food aid. So you move into like, so who has the capacity to tackle those structural issues. And you start looking at policymakers, whether that be in local authorities, national government, UK government, you, you, you identify where the people are who have the power to change those things. And so it becomes a natural evolution. What is so important is that it's not a party political issue. And I think that's where one can go wrong. Like this, isn't, this is an issue of policy with a small p that people in power who, who run the structures that make our society function have the capacity of given the right information who understand what's going on to make changes that would affect the lives of us as citizens. So we speak to them about those issues. And it's about their roles, not about them as people. I think that's also really important. So most people who move into politics are have a, the heart of servants. They're certainly not doing it for the cash. They're not doing it for the quiet life and they're not doing it for short hours. And I can testify to that being my experience of working with MPs from across the spectrum. They work extremely hard, not for very much money, comparably if you work out on an hourly rate and for a lot of stick that they get day in, day out. So I think if you address the policy work in that way, it's a natural evolution and extension of the work we're doing 
in local communities. Before you're at the Trust of Trust, you've been a CEO before a number of different yeah. charities. Tell us about some of the, the biggest challenges that you've faced in your career as a Christian leader. I think the thing that is the stuff that will keep you up overnight is that it's like it's a huge privilege to serve in that way. But it, you carry a responsibility for the livelihoods of the people who you're employing like something about anyone running an organization whether that's a charity or an, not a charity you have responsibility for people's livelihoods and for their experience day to day so that they come into work in a place that feels safe that feels accessible that allows them to be their authentic selves with their families and all the pressures outside of work they don't have to like pretend that doesn't exist and come into work and so it's that stuff that i think is is a huge responsibility and when you layer on that a charity, then you also hold some of those same concerns for like beneficiaries, for people who are accessing your services and, and thinking about how do you ensure like during the pandemic services keep running and, and there's an accessibility and that they're the right services and that you're speaking well on behalf of the people you're representing. Like those are, those are the things that of a night I might be <laughs> on occasions <laughs> staying up having to worry about but the, the way through that is you're not on your own you're part of a team and so one of the things we do at Trussell is we have our strategic consultation groups of food banks in each of the four nations and we get together there's people who are running like local food banks and us like some of my team centrally are running like the national organization and we just like share something about those worries or those fears or those concerns with one another and there's some it's, it's incredibly liberating to have that sense of solidarity, of community, of shared responsibility with one another. So whenever I've had difficult times over the last kind of 15 years or whatever, my what I've learned is that it's better to share those and to work together to find the solutions because invariably someone much brighter and much more competent than me will have a good idea. And how do you feel about stewarding the Christian legacy of the Trust of Trust? You know, there are a lot of charities that may have had Christian roots back along. I'm thinking of the likes of like homeless charities like Crisis or Shelter, which if you dig into the history, you find out that they started life as a Christian charity. But that, that history is kind of just you may not know if you looked at them from the surface. How do you feel about Trust of Trust's Christian roots? Is that always going to be something that's very much part of the organisation or is it? necessarily going to have to recede into the background in order to be as inclusive as it needs to be to work in the public sphere in our current society? So I, I think where I always start is that Trussell Trust centrally is in service of our network. That's our job. Um, our food banks set up, our food banks came together and said actually we need these services from a central place to support us and what we're doing. So our job is to serve the needs of our food banks as they serve the needs of their local communities. And so when you start there and then you look across our network at the um, makeup of our staff and our volunteers. So um, many of the organisations are run by churches or in churches or by collections, groups of churches in local communities. Uh, and they, we are a network of people of all faiths and none. 
but there is a huge Christian influence in the makeup of our network because it was local churches that stepped forward and, and set up for banks and, and, and came together. And so how do you serve a network authentically and fully when so many of the people in that food bank network, they're motivated by their Christian faith and not speak to their Christian faith? I, I would argue you can't. And so speaking well, and engaging with people and recognizing that their values and their motivations are deeply rooted in their Christian faith and supporting that and fanning that and encouraging that is, is really important. But similarly, alongside that, it's really important, particularly as we are an organization that although rooted in and shaped by our Christian values is an organization that is staffed by people of all faiths and none. Similarly, there are people in our network who are people of, of other faiths and, and no faiths. And the thing I think that unites us is our values. And so our values are accessible to people of Christian faith. And I definitely interpret those values for myself through my Christian faith. But community, dignity, justice and compassion can also be understood through other faiths and, and through no faith. And that's the thing that gives us a sense of common purpose and a, a common language to speak to one another. And it comes back to that thing I said earlier, it's about being able to be authentically ourselves. So if motivated by a Christian faith, I want us to be able to talk about that um, with one another and to express that part of us. If motivated by another faith or, or no faith at all, there needs to be a space to be able to express that too and feel part of this incredible work. So I, I don't see any situation where Christian faith won't be hugely important to the Trussell Trust because we are a network largely run in and through local churches. And so I think there's a real beauty in that that I certainly cherish and I imagine we will be cherishing until we're able to close our doors and end the need for food banks. Does it ever cause any conflict at a political level? Have you ever had doors shut in your face because you're a Christian charity or because you have Christian roots? You probably wouldn't. Would you define yourself as a Christian charity? No, and I think that clarity about the relationship we have with Christian faith and, and local churches is really important in those kind of contexts. And so, no, I, I don't think so. I think I, I, I really enjoy talking about the fact that local churches work together alongside people of other faiths and none in their communities to, to support people. Like, you can't really argue with the fact that it's that these are the people that have stepped forward and are, are doing this incredible work. <laughs> so it's beautiful and a thing to be celebrated. So no, I don't encounter problems. What do you think the next couple of years are going to hold for you guys? We've already said, obviously, that we are currently living in an incredibly challenging climate. And, and recently you were part of writing a letter to our now ex-Prime Minister, Liz Truss, <laughs> with many signatures on it. Is the government responding at all to that? Do you think they are going to uplift benefits? So we're speaking to them a lot. And they're very um, interested in what we're seeing on the front line and very attentive to that. And I think it is important, again, to, to through various iterations of Chancellor and now Prime Minister, uh, we have seen unprecedented levels of support from the government to people uh, on uh, on universal credit. We've also seen cuts. So they've been one-off payments and then removed and then other one-off payments. So it's about having that conversation and we have that conversation and presenting the information we're seeing and encouraging and advocating for our government to, to do the right thing. And one of the things that particularly concerns me is 
as I look actually past this winter into next year, I'm very worried about this winter. But as I look into next year, we've had so many one-off payments from government to people on working age benefits. If those one-off payments are not made again next year, and if benefits are not uprated in line with inflation, you're seeing a massive drop in the value of working age benefits at a time when if all of the, the data would show us that inflation is going to stay very, very high. So those costs for people are going to remain very high. And you're going to see this. There's already a gap between the income people have on benefits and the costs that they're bearing. That gap is going to increase substantially next year if we don't see government intervention to uprate and increase people's access to income. I'm very worried about our network's capacity. It's not something a network of food bank charities can hold on their own. It's not something actually the third sector can hold on its own. We're going to do everything we can to support people for as long as we can. But it's too big a gap. And that's very worrying. We're already seeing that food supplies in our food banks are just not keeping track with the level of need. And normally at this point in the year, we'd have very full shelves going into the winter period, but actually all of those kind of back store stocks that we would have gained over a period of months, they're going out, food's coming in and going out, and it's not it's not coming in at the rate that can keep up with the food that's going out. So that's, that's really worrying. But more worrying is that if the government don't step in, we're gonna see many more people having to, to come to food banks and many more people just feeling that tremendous stress and worry of how they're going to make ends meet this winter. Now, lots of people would say if wages are not increasing with inflation, then why should benefits? You know, no, nobody else in, who's got a job is going to be seeing a 10% plus increase in their wages this year. So everybody's got a budget. Everybody's just got to rein it in. Everybody's got to make ends meet. What would your comments be on that? So I, I absolutely hear why people would think that, but it's we're not comparing like with like. And so the proportion of one's income when you're on benefits that's spent on the essential items, all of which have gone up in price, is, is much higher. Back in the 80s, working age benefits would have been about equivalent to about 30% of kind of average earnings. Now they're equivalent to about 15% of average earnings. There's no fat in in this cash that people are getting on working age benefits, they're extremely low. They're about comparable with about 30% of what somebody would earn on minimum wage on a 40 hour week. That's your standard rate of working age benefits. There's no slap in there. You can't find the extra 200 quid for your energy bill. It's just not there. Costs go up by 14% on food that you just can't buy food. So I think that's one of the things we have to hold in our minds. There's something around justice, around should we be equitably going up? But there's also something around like, we should all at least be able to afford the essentials. And then we look at everything on top of that. And I think if we start at that point, if you start with those principles in mind, there's no way you're not uprating benefits in line with inflation. It's, it's, it's just unthinkable. And is there more that we can be doing within the church to, you know, raise the profile, get the word out there, give more? Is it cash? Is it tins of beans? Like, what is it that you'd like to see from the Christians that are listening to this? So all, all of those above, we launched our first ever emergency appeal just last week. Pretty horrified to do it. We haven't done that before, but we need to be able to support for banks to keep going this winter. They, they're seeing increase in energy costs. They're seeing increase in petrol costs to do home deliveries. They're seeing having to buy food 
which they normally rely on donated food, having to buy food to make up the shortfall and that food costs a lot more money than it used to cost. So cash will allow us to support food banks to keep going. But also if you are able and you're making a donation in a, in a supermarket of food into a food bank bucket or you're taking it to a food bank, if you're able to give any more food, we like our, our network are, are really in need of items. And the best way to do that is to um, look on our website, trusttrust.org, and you can, you can find your nearest food bank and on their websites, they'll tell you information about what items they're particularly short of. But beyond that, I think as churches, we have different routes into influencing people in power. And I think being able to use our voices to say that this is now an issue of justice, to not just focus on the compassion, which is incredibly important. Compassion is about the food and the warm response when people come through the doors of food banks, but actually to question what, what does it mean for our societal structures to be pushing people further into poverty, further into destitution, and what might change look like in those structures and how might we use our influence, our voice, our presence in different conversations in different parts of society to advocate for a more just future. And the newer types of initiatives that have been coming online as the warm spaces initiatives and things like that and churches that are getting involved in that kind of thing, is it, is that something that you guys are on board with? Is that a good idea that we all open up our churches and give out cups of tea? It's always good to be reaching out in your community. I think that's that same that same feeling in a in your tummy that's made somebody open a warm space is the same feeling that was in a tummy of a food bank project manager ten years ago when they opened a food bank. It's that motivate that desire to to actively respond. So it's always that's always commendable and and incredible. But it is always being cognizant of what is the underlying problem and what is the symptom? So a warm space, a food bank is responding to a symptom. Hunger, being cold are symptoms of destitution and of poverty. And so as long as we're all clear with one another that the things that we're doing, although really valuable, important, kind, are just treating symptoms of a problem. And so we should also be using our voices to call for a response to the actual problem, to ensure that people have enough money to be able to afford the essentials. Um, I often wonder what our 36,000 volunteers would be doing if they weren't collecting food from supermarket collection points, dating them, providing emergency food parcels. They'd be able to spend a lot more time having a cup of tea and a chat with people in their communities. That, and that is a really powerful thing that we're able to do, but the infrastructure that comes with providing emergency food aid if our volunteers weren't having to do that, it could be incredible. The force for more things they could do, tackling isolation, fighting solidarity, community, those things that, that are synonymous with church. But actually, a lot of our time is, is spent having to provide emergency food aid. I'm always just happy and sad simultaneously when I hear that we're doing new things like warm spaces to respond to our communities, but sad that we're having to do it at all. It's interesting, isn't it, the, um, the cup of tea and the time and the listening ear, because that's something that I particularly hear a lot from our local food bank and from the people that go in, that they often go into a food bank, like you said, when they've hit rock bottom and they've got no other options left and they've exhausted all other avenues because they feel ashamed, embarrassed, scared, intimidated, 
And then when they walk through the door, they are greeted by someone who makes them a cup of tea, gives them a biscuit, chats to them, treats them like a human being, loves them, quite frankly. And so many times the stories I hear um, are, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting someone to love me. I wasn't expecting someone to be so kind. Why are you being so kind to me? <laughs> you know, those those are the things actually that we hope in our hearts the church is known for. And when you when you have the church reaching out into their community in that way, that that is the impact that we can have. And I, I wonder if that's what sets the food bank apart. You know. I read on your website that the, the original vision came from that verse in Matthew where it says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to eat. And you've spoken about that concept of dignity. And that's really important, isn't it? When as Christians, we choose to do something in the community, that we treat people with the dignity and the love and the compassion that Jesus would have reached out to them with. And we don't make them feel less than because we're giving them charity. Yeah. I, I one, one of the, the great privileges of my role is I get to visit lots of our food banks and I often talk about that amazing feeling when I walk through the door because people won't know me from Adam and I walk in and I get to receive the radical welcome this incredible enveloping of love that volunteers are like they know how hard it is for somebody to step across the threshold and so I get to experience it and it's always extraordinary like people are referred to the food bank because they need emergency food but when I speak to people who have been into the food bank about their experience they are always stuck with that encounter with compassion with somebody who just showed them love and kindness and created a warm space in which to sit and have a cup of tea and a chat. And there is something in all of us that needs to feel connected, that responds to something in one another. And I think and there's something around seeing Christ in one another. See, that is about upholding dignity, is about upholding the, the incredibleness of the person that's sitting in front of you and the privilege of being able to provide service or support in that context is yeah, immeasurable. And so I think if you speak to any of our food bank volunteers or staff and or any of the staff at Trust of Trust, we are changed through those encounters. We are restored and changed and, and transformed through the, the, the privilege of those encounters with people who come through the doors of our food banks. And that's that's something very, very special. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.